Let's turn to God's word, 2 Samuel 18. 2 Samuel 18, page 317 in your pew Bibles. Page 317, you know, remember that Absalom is fighting against the throne of Christ, where David, the type of Christ, is seated. When you fight against the throne of Christ and set yourself up against it, you are on the side of the Antichrist. And that's the battle here. Absalom, the Antichrist, against the throne of Christ. And we see here the victory in this battle belongs to the Lord. There they're fighting this battle in the forests of Gilead. Absalom and all Israel against David and his supporters. Second Samuel 18 verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that, he was, that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect protect the young man Absalom. Deal gently, remember David's request? Deal gently with my son Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You wouldn't have come up to support me. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearer, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it's called Absalom's monument to this day. And our text begins here. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, no, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So Joab said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. 
And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, Ah, he's a good man. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news from my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day, The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told... Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. It's God's good word. Brothers and sisters, may he bless us by it. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, God weaves his perfect story of redemption with the threads of his imperfect saints. The fabric of real people in real situations. And even the best of the fabrics he uses, the saints, is a mixture of right and wrong. And even the worst of them can do good and necessary things. But God is always doing his perfect work through imperfect saints. And in this passage, we have especially in this cast of characters, 
two of them, David, whose love for Absalom is so right in many ways and so wrong in other ways. And then you have hard-nosed Joab, who's harsh and often makes such wrong decisions like killing Abner. And yet can do just the right thing at the right time in his no-nonsense way like this time. And when we all get to heaven through faith in Jesus, we'll stand amazed that the power of the Antichrist has been defeated and the power of Christ is exalted and the kingdom is won through this cast of characters like David, Joab, and the rest of us. It's an amazing story because of God's grace and God's goodness. It's amazing that the kingdom of Christ will gain the victory. When you consider the people, even the people on the Lord's side who are fighting, fighting the fight of the kingdom, the good fight of faith, God brings it all together somehow. This awesome wisdom and might and goodness for Christ's sake brings it all together and restores his kingdom out of Satan's grip. So we meet here David's imperfect love. It's a love respected by his people's care. That's what we see first, respected by his people's care and displayed in David's grief and then rebuked and corrected by Joab's wisdom. Respected, the imperfect love of David, respected by his people's care. Well, let the celebration begin. Absalom's dead. The revolt has failed. The war is over. The man who brought so much trouble, the man who was so full of himself and in love with his hair, that wicked charmer. False shepherd who stole the people's hearts from the true shepherd. He's done. He's gone. He's dead. He's under a pile of rocks. Yay! But as soon as he's dead, there's a hush that comes over David and his people. Out of respect for David's love, fear even for David's love for his son, Absalom. He's now lost his third son. First child from him and Bathsheba, then Amnon, and now Absalom. And he's just overwhelmed with grief. And he had said in the hearing of them all, deal gently with my son Absalom for my sake. And out of respect for David's love for his son, one of his soldiers saw, I remember, saw Absalom hanging from a tree, but he was loath to touch him. I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. Verse 12, I would not do that. But Joab was concerned for justice. He knew that David would continue to coddle his son and the evil would continue. He must die. They must be rid of the Antichrist in their midst. And he took care of Absalom. Shoved three javelins into his heart and had his ten 
men, armor bearers around and finish the job. It's overkill, you might say. Typical harshness of Joab. We'll encounter that again. He needs to be tenderized by the love of God. Joab's heart needs to be tenderized by the love of God. Ours does too, doesn't it? So let's ask ourselves, when we do what is right in punishing the evildoer, when we see the evildoer receiving justice, is there grief? Is there reluctance in it? Like our God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But now he's dead and the big issue is how are we going to let him know? How are we going to let him know? In Ahimaaz, who's been posted, remember, with, with Jonathan as the informants to the king on the side of the revolt to the other side, go across enemy lines and inform the king. He wants to be first out the gate and tell the good news to the king. The war is over. And Joab says, no, you're too close to the king. He's not going to reward whoever tells him. This is not going to go well. And so he tried to protect Ahimaaz from receiving the wrath or the grief, whatever it might be, of David. So Joab tells the Cushite, here's a guy from northern Sudan, who has somehow, by God's grace, entered the ranks of Israel, and like Ittai the Gittite, the man from the Philistines, is a loyal supporter of David. He tells this Cushite, you go tell him. You're far enough away from it that you'll be able to take the beating better than a close friend. You tell, tell the king what you saw. And so the Cushite Runs off to tell the news, but Ahimaaz is so eager. He begs and begs, can I go too? Can I? And Job says, sure, go. And though the Cushite takes the shortcut through the bush, Ahimaaz knows a faster way around along the plain. And he gets there first. But again, out of concern for David, he doesn't tell him the whole truth. He's been told the king's son is dead. He knows it. He brings the good news. You've been delivered. David, really, and this is where his love goes wrong. He doesn't care. He has only one concern, my son. Is my son safe? Is there shalom for Absalom? That's the word in, the, in Hebrew. Is he at peace? Why? There was a commotion and I, he fudges. And I I didn't really see what was happening. Then comes the second herald, the Cushite. And he also brings good news. Good news for my Lord the King. Verse 31. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rise up against you. Same question. Is it well with the young man Absalom? Verse 32. I, I don't care how everybody's doing, except as Absalom. And the Cushite, respectfully, tells it like it is. No fudging. 
with a good understanding of the kingdom. May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And then David knew what happened. What should we make of all this walking on eggshells around David's love for Absalom? There's clearly something wrong in it. David needs to face the truth of the matter. And he needs to see the kingdom perspective beyond the personal desire and worry for his son. And that God has answered many prayers. And he's done such a mighty and gracious work in saving Christ's kingdom, rescuing Christ's kingdom from the Antichrist. But there's also something right about recognizing that even in this victory, there's something terribly sad. And there's cause for grief. There's cause for grief. And that's what we see secondly. That David's imperfect love is displayed in his deep, deep grief. It's one of the most heart-rending laments in the Bible. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And he repeats that later. If you know Jamie Soul's music, you can hear that lament in the words of that song. Oh, Absalom, my son. This is the third time we hear David lamenting over the death of his enemies. His lament in 2 Samuel 1 over Saul. Deep lament. Great love for Saul. And then his lament over Abner. After Abner is killed, we read that he raised a lament. And now his lament over the enemy, his son Absalom. And even though there's a lot of impurity mixed into this sorrow, I'm convinced that we really see something here of the love of Christ for his enemies. When Jesus wept over Jerusalem's children, there he was going down the Mount of Olives, loudly weeping and wailing over the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the death of her inhabitants because of their unbelief. Our God is a God who weeps over the lost, beloved. And when, when we weep over the lost, oh, Absalom, my son, you can be sure his is much louder and much deeper. He's not a God who delights throwing the wicked into hell for eternity. Absolutely not. Christ casts no one into hell over whom he has not wept, writes one author. Let me say that again. Christ casts no one into hell over whom he has not wept. Oh, there is the justice of God. And he does punish the wicked with hell, eternal hell and destruction, who do not repent and seek the Lord. He does. He glorifies himself through his holy justice toward the wicked. But Christ cast no one into hell over whom he has not wept. Who would not want to worship such a good and gracious God who receives all who come to him 
And maybe you're in an Absalom place right now, the place of a prodigal son. Before it's too late, return to him who delights in mercy. Think of the grief that you bring not only to your parents, but of all, above all the grief you bring to the heart of our God. And let that grief melt you and realize how good I had it and I will have it in my father's house. And how terrible is the life that I'm leading and where it's going. David's cry is a cry of loss. He's lost a son. And no matter how wicked Absalom is, we should not fault him for grief because death is loss. It's deep loss. It's heart-rending loss. And the death of a lost son is infinitely heavier. And I think of Paul grieving over his lost Jewish family members and feeling that pain so deeply, he's willing to be cursed for their sake just if they might be saved. Like, I think he's borrowing that. He might be borrowing that from David's cry. If I could have died instead of you. And our Lord Jesus did go all the way to death for us. It's a cry of loss, but it's also a cry of regret. David's family has been through a terrible time. He's lost Bathsheba's first son, his oldest son Amnon, and now Absalom. And he knows he bears some responsibility in all this as a consequence of his adultery and then murder of Uriah. Remember that God told him through Nathan, the sword will not depart from your household. So there's so much here, more in the sorrow than meets the eye. The depths of his soul are opened up by this news of Absalom's death and it becomes a well that gushes out. Waves of overwhelming emotion. And he's weeping and he's wailing so loud. Everybody hears. He's shedding tears over all the pain he's brought to his family and to the kingdom. That kind of grief is not wrong. Where do you go with grief like that? Cry over loss, cry of regret. We we probably all have that to some extent, right? Is there any resting place? Is there any shalom? I read a story about evangelist Billy Graham appearing on Larry King Live interview show. And there, Billy Graham's being interviewed with a few other guests, and Larry King asked them, do you have any regrets you know, about choices you've made about your life? And the others who were non-Christians all said no. They didn't have any regrets. But Billy Graham, the only Christian there, said, oh yes, he had regrets. He regretted his sins, how he'd hurt others, especially how he'd been away from his children too much. Then he said, I'll have to leave my regrets with Jesus Christ, who not only forgives me, but I trust him to redeem what I've done wrong. Still make good, something good of it. 
And only Christian, a Christian can have a sorrow like that, is able to see his sins and failures and mistakes and leave them with the Lord who alone can carry them and make good of it all in his way, in his time. You really have to go to the perfect tears of Jesus, don't we? In his weeping, we can find refuge. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows our failures. He sees and feels our loss. That's the grief that brought him to the cross. To pay for our sins. And that's the grief that goes after lost sinners. And calls them to come home to him. And that's the grief that sees his saints mourning. Under their losses and their crosses. And collects their tears, says the psalmist. And and puts them in his bottle. And one day he will right every wrong and he'll make everything beautiful in his time, Ecclesiastes 3. And one day he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And the days of our mourning will be ending, ended, says the prophet. Take refuge in the tears of Jesus. Not only over your tears, but the things that your tears are over. And leave it with him. Leave it with him. Leave your regrets with Christ, your pains, your losses, your crosses with him. There's just so much we cannot solve, right? Of what others have done to us, but also what we have done to others. There's so much we cannot solve. And then we see David's imperfect love rebuked and corrected by Joab. Often we're blinded by our tears. And the personal takes over the theological. The personal takes over the kingdom. Sometimes our love for someone can overcome our love for God's kingdom and then we lose our way. And that's what happened to David. It was told Joab, we read, Verse 1, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And verse 3 gives us a commentary that shines negative light on David. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. Something is really wrong. And the sadness of the funeral is canceling the joy of faith. The victory of God. The darkness of death is extinguishing the light of hope. David's the king. He's God's point man. And he needs a friend to give him some solid counsel at this moment. Someone to help him see the kingdom through his tears. The bigger picture. To see God. And then God gives him a perfect man for the job. Joab. Not the counselor David would choose. What have I to do with you sons of Zeruiah? Not the counselor David. I certainly wouldn't have sent Joab. I don't like the guy. But God sent him. God's perfect choice. At this moment. David 
does not have time to be completely absorbed in his grief. And he needs to get out of that deep hole immediately and lift up his eyes to God and see the kingdom and pay attention to the church. And Joab charges him with three things, ingratitude, hatred, and carelessness. Look at verse five. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you, Absalom. And you hate those who love you, your own people. You've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us dead, ha, you'd be fine. You'd be pleased. Right when God is restoring David's throne, he's not acting like a king at all. He's so absorbed in the loss of his son, he can't see the kingdom of Christ. And he forgets his calling in the body of Christ. He ignores his office. He tosses his people aside. He's willing to let his emotions for his son get in the way of everything and everyone else. It consumes him. And that's where we see David's love go sideways. You can already hear that in his plea. Deal gently for my sake. With the young man Absalom, for my sake. David, it's not about you. Not for the Lord's sake, no. Not for Israel's sake, but for my sake. And that's been his tendency all along, right? Absalom had murdered Amnon. Absalom had revolted against the Lord's anointed one. Absalom had turned the whole nation against God, against the Christ. Absalom needed to come before the living God. Absalom needed to be God's, he needed God's justice. He needed to be brought to the throne. But what does David do? He tries to protect Israel or Absalom, God's justice And he wanted the people to go soft on Absalom. He wants the people to protect Absalom from God's justice. That's what he wants. The people of God, there's only one way to protect your loved ones from the justice of God. And that is to, while your children are still alive, while your loved ones are still alive, bring them to the throne of grace in prayer. Call them to repentance. Lead them to the way of the cross. For the cross is the only way out. That's the way to God. That's the way to salvation. That's the way to really protecting. That's the way, David, for Absalom to be safe. If you're concerned for his safety. But don't try to hide and cover him. And have the people as the shield from God. And that's where his grief goes sideways. His grief doesn't take him to the cross at this moment, but away from it. And in his grief and deep sense of loss, David must see that it's not about himself, but it's about the Lord and his kingdom, and he must lift up his eyes and see God. And that's where Joab comes in. That's where take, Joab takes David. And after rebuking him, Joab corrects him and directs him to the right action 
to right action as the king of Israel. Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come from you, upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. You see, we can't pull ourselves out of the pit of trouble and sorrow alone. We need someone to get us back on our feet to remind us of the victory we have in Christ and the calling that we have to proclaim and apply this victory and to hear the warnings against staying in our blind spot. And then we need to pray, Lord, send me help. Help me out of this hole. Help me to see your kingdom. But even when we don't, Sometimes when we don't want help, the Lord still in mercy sends it anyway. Just what we need, who we need. And not, might not necessarily be whom we like. Well, the people were told, it's a great ending here. Behold, the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king. An amazing conclusion. David gets up and he reigns. He gets up and he reigns. God lifts him up. God enables him to see through his tears. There's a bigger issue than my personal issues. There's the kingdom. There's the promise of the victory of Christ. There's still so much to live for, still so much to work for, still so much to die for. And I think the Apostle Paul in his great grief over his lost relatives. And still he says, because I know that God is right and the gospel is powerful and he's gathering himself for himself, a people from every tribe, language, and nation, because he's building up his perfect kingdom. Even though I have so much grief over the loss I experience and so much heart-rending sorrow, I trust him. And I go on serving him. Because I know we serve a living savior who's building a glorious kingdom. And though the Cushite had it exactly right. Good news for my Lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And may that good news of a Christ who's won the victory. Is establishing his kingdom. And he's using us in that work. Enable us through grief, sorrow, pain, trouble, still to trust and serve the Lord because his kingdom is forever. Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, what sorrow, what loss, what regret, what pain. The gospel of the victory of Christ and his kingdom is enough, Lord, to lift us up. And when we get lost in our emotions and blighted by our tears, send us help, Lord, and help us to see again. Help us to sit in the gate again. Help us to go and serve again. But help us also, Lord, to deal tenderly and kindly with those who grieve. 
and to see and to appreciate the grief of our God over the lost. And so help us to serve you, Lord, faithfully. Strengthen us through the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And help us to see that you will make everything beautiful in your time. We leave it with you. We leave it with you. For the kingdom will one day be perfect and our God will be all in all. And we will rejoice with everlasting joy. Amen.